All right, 1 Corinthians 15, looking at verses 20 through 28. Paul writes, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. This is one of those passages as you're reading, you're tracking with it, and then you get to like verse 26, and you're like, what is Paul talking about there? <laughs> so we'll, we'll dig into that when we get to, those, uh, to that portion. Uh, but just uh, again... A brief recap on what we looked at last time, two weeks ago. Uh, We looked at verses 12 through 19, and we're in chapter 15. Chapter 15, of course, is that great resurrection chapter that Paul uh, gives probably the most fullest, most well-orbed teaching on the resurrection of believers, what it looks like, when it happens, why it happens, and then what we're to do in light of that. Um, you get, I mean, it, obviously this, there's more you could probably say about the resurrection that's not in here, but Paul gives a pretty clear, pretty uh, thorough discussion on the resurrection. In particular, as we'll see in weeks coming, what the resurrection means for us and what, it, you know, what kind of bodies we will have and, 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 and all these other things. It's a, it's a wonderful chapter. As I said, it's, it should be up there on the Mount Rushmore of probably the high points in Scripture. Um, But as we saw the last couple times, he begins by grounding them in the theology, if you will, of the resurrection, in the historical fact of the resurrection. How the resurrection was something that actually happened according to the Scriptures. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, and it actually happened. And how do we know it happened? Well, because the scriptures tell us. We know it happened because Jesus appeared to a bunch of people. And finally, last of all, Paul says, Jesus appeared to me as one uh, born out of due time. As, as sort of like a, a, you know, it's kind of a gross language there. It means sort of like a miscarriage. Uh, but then he talks about how he labored in this truth in which they believed. So in other words, he's, he's laying the groundwork for what he's about to discuss later by saying, look, this is what we preach to you. This is what you believed. This is the gospel, which involves three things, right? The, the fact that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again according to the scriptures. So he's like, that's what you believe. So if that's the case, why are you being troubled by a bunch of people in the church that are teaching otherwise? That's what you get in verses 12 through 19. That's how he says in verse 12. It's like, if Christ is preached and he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection from the dead? That's the problem there. That's the issue that he's trying to deal with in Corinth. The fact that there are some in that church 
despite the fact that the gospel is preached, despite the fact that they believe the gospel, there are some there who say there's no resurrection from the dead. And then he engages in what we called last time a reductio ad absurdum argument. That's Latin for sort of a reduction to the absurd, where you, you take the premise of someone else's argument and you show how it leads to conclusions which are absurd. And he's like, okay, let's assume for the fact that there is no resurrection from the dead. Then guess what? Then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins, and we are still of all people to be most pitied. Why? Because we believe in something that's not true. So that's, that's his argument, basically. And he, he does it twice, right? For if the dead do not rise, and Christ is not risen. Which, you know, we teach that that's what he's done. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is vain, you're still in your sins. You're still under the judgment of God. Your faith is empty. You're found to be false witnesses because we testify to the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead when in fact that has not happened. So he shows how their premise that there's no resurrection from the dead. See, what they were doing is they were separating the resurrection of Christ from the resurrection of other believers and say, well, we'll accept that one, but we won't accept the resurrection of believers. And Paul's like, you can't do that. You can't separate the two. Because, first of all, you know, it, it makes your faith futile. And then as we get into this passage, we're going to show how, how it is Christ's resurrection that is the promise and guarantee of our resurrection, is the promise and guarantee of death's defeat in our resurrection. That's, that's the main point this morning as we come into this. And as verse 20 begins, it begins with my favorite word. <laughs> Actually, two of my favorite words. Um, there's like four or five favorite words in the Bible. Usually it begins with but, and either says but now, but God, but Jesus. You know, usually things like that. Um, I've often joked about wanting to do a sermon series on the great buts of the Bible. Uh, B-U-T, buts. Don't, don't let your mind go in the gutter with that one. But anyway... Paul here begins this section with, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he's going to say, okay, we've looked at your argument. We've shown how it leads to false conclusions. Now let's actually start looking at the truth here. And like I said, he's going to show how there is a, a connection between Christ and those who are his. And if Christ is raised from the dead, then necessarily we must also, who are in Christ, be raised from the dead. So that's what you're going to see here. We're going to look at the but now in verse 20. We're going to look at death in Adam, life in Christ in verses 21 and 22. We're going to see that there's an order in this resurrection, right? A divine resurrection order, verses 23, 24. And then in verses 25 to 28, he talks about how the last enemy, death, has been defeated. So the but now. So Paul transitions from verses 12 through 19 with the words but now. And that word there now in the Greek means like now at this very moment. Like right now, okay? Not now as in five minutes from now or not now as in like when your kids, you know, bug you. It's like, can I have cookies? Can I? Yeah, I'll get you them. Okay, don't worry. How about when? I'll get you soon, all right? No, but Jesus, Paul's hearing, look, but now. Now Christ is risen from the dead. How do we know that? Because he's showed us that fact earlier in the chapter. Christ has been raised from the dead according to the scriptures. 
And that phrase there, is risen, really, it's in, in grammatical terms, it's what is called in the perfect tense, which means it's something that has happened in the past, but has effects that go on and continue on into the present and beyond. And a better way of translating it is probably how the ESV has it, which is probably has been raised, right? That's kind of the idea. He has been raised from the dead. And it's not just something that happened and then has no other effects, but that resurrection in the past will have effects going forward. In Acts, when Paul, or sorry, Peter, I got Paul on the mind. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter is giving his Pentecost Day sermon in verse 24. He begins his sermon by quoting from Joel chapter 2 and verses 17 through 21. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter then continues, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him, Jesus Christ, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put him to death. Verse 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And then he goes on and he'll quote a little bit from Acts chapter 16. So Peter here is saying, look, Jesus Christ is a man. You know he's a man because this is Pentecost, right? This is 40 days after the resurrection. This is, um, you, know, it, it's, you know, we're talking about two months or so since the, the crucifixion. Uh, so very fresh in everyone's mind. Everyone knows that Jesus was a man attested by God by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him. And he even says there, you yourselves know this. Why? Because you've seen it. And, God's, and Peter goes on and says that God delivered him up. It was God's plan that he be delivered up and crucified by the hands of godless men. And then he says also he has raised him from the dead. So Peter is saying, look, this, this Christ whom you know, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. How do we know this? Because I've seen him. That's what Peter will eventually say. I've seen him. He, he, he appeared to me. And here we see he, he had to be loosed from the pains of death. Why? Because it was not possible for Christ to be held in the grips of death. Peter will also mention this in his own letter in 1 Peter 1, 3. In 1 Peter 1, verse 3, where he begins his letter after his greeting, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have been begotten, we have been born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is his resurrection that makes all of this possible. If, if, the, if the grave could hold Christ, that's what Paul says in the previous section, then our faith is vain. Why? Because the sacrifice that, that Christ made for sins was not accepted by God. He remained dead, but the fact of the matter is he did not remain dead. So Christ is risen, but now Christ is risen from the dead. 
So after showing the absurd conclusions of the Corinthian position, he shifts and says, Christ has been raised from the dead. How do we know this? Because of verses 4 through 8. That he was buried and rose again, and many people saw him. And now he's going to show that the resurrection of the dead has ongoing effects for us. That's why he says he's the first fruits. The resurrection has now become the first fruits, the arche. In the Old Testament, the first fruits were always that, that first portion of the crop that the, that the farmer would offer to God as his offering and, and as a promise for the rest of the harvest to come. And that's what Jesus is. He is the first fruits, first fruits, I should say, of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, those who have died. There's a good translation, and the New Living Translation translates that part of the verse where it says that he, Jesus Christ, is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. I like that translation. That, that's, a good, that's a good understanding of this verse. He is, he is the first fruits. He is the, he is the promise of a great harvest that is yet to come. Now, you guys know this, right? Being farmers, you, you know this, right? Now, the thing is, though, you can plant. I don't know, how long does it take to plant a field? Probably you could do it in a day, right? You know, they didn't do that back then. It took them a long time to plant. But so when, when those... You know, when you guys plant corn, it all starts to kind of grow all at once, in a field at least. For them, it probably started like, okay, this is what we planted first. That would grow. And then because of how we plant, you know, how long it takes us, the things would start growing later. And they always take that first portion, and that's what they would offer up. And that's what Jesus is. He is that first portion. If you plant tomatoes or plant corn or whatever, and you see those first ears or those, those first bulbs of the tomatoes start coming up, you know that it's going to mean more is coming. Now, to be sure, there is a gap, right, between the first fruits and the rest of the harvest. And that's what we see here. There's a gap between Christ's resurrection and then the rest of us to come at the end of the age. We'll see that in a moment. But here, Christ is the first fruits. He is the promise. He is the guarantee. He is the assurance that those who are in him will be raised because he himself has been raised. So he's the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. He is our forerunner. That's what the author of Hebrews says, right? Christ is the, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is our forerunner. He is the one who is out before us. He is the one who begins our faith. He is the one who perfects our faith. And he is the proof that our resurrection uh, will occur, that we will be resurrected to eternal life. But now in verses 21 and 22, we see... Paul now talk about why he gives us the reason why Christ is the first fruits for that's why you got that word for there for since by man came death by man also came the resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all die even so in Christ all shall be made alive now if you remember when we looked at Romans about a year or so ago uh, we see that this, this idea of death coming into the world by a man. That's why Christ had to be the first fruits. Christ had to die because Adam, the first man, failed. When he says death came by man, he's referring to Adam. He's referring to the first man. And we know that from Genesis 3.19, right? Adam was placed in the garden. Adam was given a test. Adam failed the test. And because of that failure, sin came into the world. You can flip over to Romans 5. We can 
just review that briefly as we look at that. Romans 5, starting in verse 12. I'm not sure how long ago it was we looked at this. It was either late 2020 or early 2021. That's almost an eternity ago, right? (laughs) Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul there says, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Then he goes into sort of a a side here. "For uh, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So Adam is a type. He is a picture of Christ, uh, the one who is to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to many. I mean, the parenthetical comment goes on until verse 17. So let's just pick it up in verse 18. Therefore, so just as sin entered the world through one man and then death through sin, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification to life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So Paul here is showing us how there are really only two groups of people in the world. Right? It's not men and women. (laughs) Though that's true, there are men and women in the world. It's not even Republican and Democrat, even though we might want to think about that as the election season gets closer and closer. There are only two types of people in the world. Those who are in Adam, those who are in Christ. And if you're in Adam, you're, you're there because you're born into this world. One man brought death into the world, therefore one man must bring the resurrection from the dead. Jesus comes, in a sense, to kind of clean up the mess that Adam made. Adam failed, and because of his failure, sin and death come into the world. And then Jesus has to come now and defeat sin and death, and that's what he does on the cross. So because of Adam's failure, Christ comes and he succeeds where he failed. I mean, there's many more passages we can look at. Ezekiel 18.4 says the soul who sins must die. Uh, Romans 6.23 says that um, the wages of sin is death, but the grace of God is, but the free gift is, is salvation through Christ alone. Hebrews 9 talks about how it is appointed uh, to man to die once and then face the judgment. Death comes into the world by a man. And because of that, then a man must bring the resurrection of the dead. And that's what we'll see. I mean, what does Jesus say to Mary at the tomb of Lazarus in, 11, in John eleven twenty five? 25? When, when, sorry, Martha. When Martha says, I know that my brother will rise again at the resurrection on the last day, what does Jesus say to her? He says, I am the resurrection. I am the one who came to bring this resurrection life to people. I'm the one who came to defeat sin and death. Now, verse 22, like I said, is very, very important. It's a very, very important verse in Scripture because there are only two kinds of people in the world, those in Adam and those in Christ. Now, we need to understand here, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15 if you're not there. 
when Paul here says all, for as in Adam all die, so even in Christ all shall be made alive. There are some who will take that all and try to make it say that it means all will be saved, like universalism, okay? So they'll say, look, hey, we're all in Adam, therefore in Christ we'll all be saved. And that's not what it's teaching. We know the Bible doesn't teach universalism because we know that we can look at specific passages where we see Christ judging the wicked and and condemning them to the lake of fire or to the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, the sheep and the goat judgments in Matthew 25 or or the great white throne judgment which, which we just saw a few weeks back in Revelation chapter 20. So it cannot be teaching universalism. We need to understand what those alls mean there. And those alls are just saying, look, if you're an Adam, you're going to die. But if you're in Christ, and all of us who are in Christ, we will be made alive. And how does one become in Christ? Well, you're in Adam by being born, right? If you're born into this world, you're born in Adam. How is one brought into being in Christ? How does one move from being in Adam to in Christ? Being born again, right? If you're born once, you're born in Adam. If you're born twice, you're born in Christ, right? How does the old saying go? It's like born once, uh, die twice. Born twice, die once. You know, I think that's how it goes, right? If you're born twice, born first and physically, then born spiritually by the Spirit, you only die once. If you're only born physically, then you're going to die when you die, and then you're going to die again the second death, right? That's the whole idea of the second death. So we are in Christ or in Adam, and we're in Christ by new birth. And the new birth only comes by the Spirit of God. It only comes by the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God in the people of God. That's how you are born again. You are born again through the Spirit of God, working in the people of God through the Word of God. That's why John says in John, or Jesus says in John chapter 3, that the Spirit blows wherever it desires, right? So it is with those who are born again. You don't see the Spirit doing His work, but the Spirit is there doing His work in the hearts of those who are Christ's. I was going to go into a discussion of covenant of works, covenant of grace, but I'm looking at the clock and I'm seeing that I'm battling time, so I'll just dig on. So now in verses 23 and 24, Paul shows us So even though all in Christ shall be made alive, there is an order to the events in verses 23 and 24. But each one in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So that's the order. The first one to taste resurrection life is Christ, right? That's the Sunday school answer. I just gave you, I lobbed a softball. The first one to taste resurrection life is Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits that that Paul uses that phrase there again. But then there's an order. After Christ is those who are his at his return, right? Christ the first fruits. Afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming. Paul talks about this again in 1 Thessalonians 4. You ought to know this passage fairly well. Uh, It's a 
classic passage that often talks about uh, the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, uh, the, 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 the hope that we have for those who die in Christ. It's often preached at, at funerals. But here there's, we, we see this order kind of um, uh, supported here in verses, um, well, starting in verse, I think, thir- we'll just start in verse 13, where Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Again, that's a euphemism for, for dead. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so there's that idea, okay, Jesus died and rose again, that's the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, he died and rose again, according to the scriptures, he is the first fruits, he is the first one to taste resurrection life. If we believe that, then God will also bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So if we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then we believe that God will raise those who are asleep in Christ as well. Again, you cannot separate those two. The resurrection of Christ necessarily leads to the resurrection of believers. And then he goes on, For this we say to you, verse 15, By the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's the order. Okay, So Christ rises, he's the first fruits. Then at the end, when he returns, and the trumpet sounds, and the loud voice sounds of the archangel, then the next group in order will be those who are asleep, right? Those who died in Christ. They will be woken up and they will, be, they will rise and go to be with Christ. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we shall always be with the Lord. So there's your order. Christ the first fruits, then those who are dead in Christ, and those who are alive when Christ returns. That's the order that Paul's talking about. Now, I, I always mention, not always, but often mention movies, and I'm kind of, you know, there's Mark kind of like movies. <laughs> Which one are you going to tell us that we haven't seen now? <laughs> and I, and I, I get, the, but people have seen movies. Okay, I'm not going to mention a specific movie, but we've gone to the movies, right? We've done that in our lives, I'm sure. And whenever you go to the movies, right, you always see before the movie starts, what do you see? You see the previews, Right. And you, you know, you're like, oh, that looks like a good movie, or oh, that looks like garbage, I'm not going to go see that. Well, those previews are there to sort of whet your appetite for what's to come. And that's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. He's sort of like a preview. He is a preview of coming attractions. He is what will, we will be like, right? That's what First John says. We will be like him when we see him as he is. When he returns, we will be like him. Christ is the preview of coming attractions. And Paul will get into that later when he talks about how our resurrection bodies will be like. But he is the preview of the rest of, of what's going to come, and the rest will rise at the end of the age. That's why Paul says, then comes the end. So Christ, then he comes, and when he comes, those who are asleep will rise with him, and then that's it. That's the end, right? That's what Paul says. Then comes the end. That's when Jesus will then deliver the kingdom to the Father. My task is done. The kingdom is now yours, Father. 
The second coming marks the end of the age. There's nothing left on God's calendar other than the second coming of Christ. And when that happens, there's nothing else after that except the eternal state. The end comes. And Paul says here, Christ is reigning now. He must reign now. That's what we see in verse 25, but we'll get to that in a moment. But Christ is reigning now. When he returns, he hands the kingdom to the Father. And then Jesus puts an end to all earthly rule and power at his return. Christ is reigning now, but as he is reigning now, we know that he's reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And even so, we see what's going on in the world. This is the time of the beast, if you will, from Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. The beast is, has his hour now. But when Christ comes, what's going to happen to the beast, right? We see this in Revelation. The false prophet gets thrown into the lake of fire. The beast gets thrown into the lake of fire. The dragon gets thrown into the lake of fire. Death gets thrown into the lake of fire. It all gets thrown into the lake of fire when Christ returns at the end of the age. A couple of passages in Daniel to show this. Daniel foresaw this, and you might remember this when we looked at Daniel um, last winter, almost a year ago. In Daniel chapter 2, this is the vision of uh, the, the great statue that Nebuchadnezzar has of the four, you know, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Well, you know what happens, okay? There's, there's the statue. You've got the statue, and you've got the feet that are made partly of iron, partly of clay. And you were told that a stone, right, is cast. A stone that is uh, not carved by any human hands, and it strikes the image at the, at the feet, and the whole thing tumbles down. And we're told later on that that stone is the kingdom of the Son of Man. As, so verse 45, Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of a mountain without hands, and it had broken pieces, the iron, bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. That stone is Jesus Christ. And we know that from Daniel's vision in chapter 7. And I'm certain of these verses. Verse 14 of Daniel 7. This is the vision of the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days. And we learn in verse 14 that to him the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And then later on in verse 27, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom, the Most High's kingdom, is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. So that's what Paul is saying here in Revelation, sorry, in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, when he says that Christ must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, when he puts all, an end to all rule and all authority. Now, finally, in verses 25 through 28, we see the last enemy, death. So Paul continues the thought of verse 24. By saying that Jesus is reigning now and he will reign until the goal of God's plan is complete. So verse 25, for he must reign, that is Christ, must reign till he, Christ, has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. 
So verse 27, that's quoting Psalm 8, verse 6. That first he refers to God. That second his is Jesus. So God has put all things under the feet of Christ. But when he says, when God says all things are put under Jesus, it is evident that God who put all things under Jesus is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subject to the Father who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And I substituted for those those pronouns so you can kind of understand what Paul is saying there. What Paul is saying there basically is this, that that the Father gave the Son a kingdom, Christ the Son has obtained that kingdom, then Christ then gives that kingdom back to the Father, and then the Son subjects himself to the Father who gave all things to him. That way all things are under God and in God and all uh, subsumed under God. And that's what we see in Psalm 110.1, right? Where the Lord says to my Lord, come and sit until I make your enemies a footstool. And the goal of all of this, this is in a sense the plan of redemptive history, the goal of all of this is essentially this. First, the gathering in of the elect. So Christ is reigning now until the elect are all gathered in. And Christ is reigning until all enemies have been defeated. We've seen this in Revelation 20, verse 14. What happens at the white throne judgment when Christ comes to sit? Everything is, is, is done, right? All of the enemies have been defeated, and death itself is cast into the lake of fire. He defeats death. That's why in Revelation 21, when we looked at that, the new heavens and the new earth. Where's death in the new heavens and the new earth? It's not there, right? There's no death. There's no sorrow and no pain. None of these things. Why? Because death has been defeated. Christ reigns until the elect are gathered in. Christ reigns until all enemies are defeated. And then Christ himself will then give that kingdom back to the Father. Now, one of the things you hear people say often is that death is a natural part of life. How many people have heard something along those lines? Death is just something that we expect in this world, right? Death is just part of living in this world. Well, death is not a natural part of life. We weren't made to die. That's not how we were made back in Genesis. We were not made to die. When, how did, I mean, was there death when God created all things? Was there death at the end of Genesis 1 when God created man and woman, placed them in the garden, and at the end of Genesis 1 says, you know, when he looked at all things, he said, it's it's very good? Do you think there was death then? Not if everything is very good. Death is not very good, okay? Death is not good at all. Death is evil. Death is a result of sin. So when God says all things are very good, that means there is no death, no sin, none of that at the beginning in the creation, That means death is not a natural part of life. We were never meant to die. Death is an invader. Death came in through sin, right? That's what Paul says in Romans 5. One man sinned, and through sin, death entered the world. It's like, you know, know, sin came, knocked on the door, like, you know, those old salesmen come, right? They knock on the door, and they try to sell you something, and before you can slam the door on them, they put their foot in the door so you can't slam the door, and they can continue talking to you. Well, that's kind of what happens. Sin put its foot in the door, and the door couldn't get closed, so now death came into the world because sin opened the way. Death is an invader. It's an enemy. That's what Paul says here. It is the last enemy. 
The last enemy to be defeated is death. And that's what we see in Revelation 20, verse 14. After everyone's been cast into the lake of fire, the last things to be cast in there are Hades and death are cast into the lake of fire, and that's it. All the enemies have been subdued. And that's why Paul quotes from Psalm 8, verse 6, which talks about, in a sense, really what Psalm 8 is talking about is how man has been made to be a little while uh, under the angels, but he will give, uh, he will have authority and rule. And, and man was supposed to rule. Man was created to rule in God's place in the creation. But Adam, again, failed. So now Jesus restores what was lost by Adam. And, Ad, and then man by man, Christ will rule and he will reign and he will put all enemies under his feet. Well, those, those last verses there, um, the, all things being under the feet of Jesus does not include the Father. That's why I substituted for those pronouns there. The Father who put all things under the Son. The Father gave a Son a mission to accomplish, right? That, this is what we often call the covenant of redemption. It's not a word you find in the Bible, but it's the idea that in eternity past, the plan of redemption was made between the Father and the Son. The Father said, I want to give you a people, but you're going to have to redeem them. And the Son said, got it, I will redeem the people that you give to me. And then in due time, Christ enters into this world, right? He's made, uh, he, he humbles himself, he comes in the form of his servant, Philippians 2. He takes on human flesh, John 1. He enters into this world and completes his mission. He completes his mission first when he goes to the cross and he says, it is finished. I have done the work of redemption. And then at the end, when Christ returns, he will say, okay, everything is finished because everything is done. All enemies have been defeated. And now he gives the kingdom back to the Father. He lays the kingdom at the feet of the Father. And then as Paul there says at the end of verse 28, that God may be all in all. That is the plan of redemption in a nutshell. The plan of redemption in a nutshell. And now as we bring this to a close, because we're running out of time. <laughs> Shocker, right? <laughs> it's like, Pastor, when will you ever finish on time? The resurrection is not an isolated event. That's what Paul is saying here. You cannot, that you, as I said at the beginning, you cannot separate the resurrection of Christ from the resurrection of believers. They, they connect. It is all part of one plan. Uh, again, because what, are, what is one way to describe the church? There are a couple of ways to describe the church, but what's one popular way of describing the church? We are the what of Christ. The body of Christ, right? That's one. Another one is the bride of Christ. We are the body of Christ. Christ is the head of his body. We are his body. Where the head is, the body must follow, right? <laughs> you cannot have the head up in heaven alone without the body. The body must follow. So you cannot separate the two. It is not a limited event with, with limited repercussions. It is something that culminates in God's rule over all history. Christ's resurrection is grounded in the truth of the resurrection. That's why Paul belabored the, uh, that the, the gospel truth of the resurrection in the first few verses of chapter 15. This is an actual historical event. Christ was raised from the dead according to the scriptures, and we have witnesses. And now this has an effect that will ripple through the rest of redemptive history. In other words, you could say 
It changes everything. That's why Paul begins the passage by saying, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. This changes everything. It is, and to use the parlance of, of sports, it's a game changer. <laughs> right? This is a game-changing event. And, and just to peek ahead real briefly, because you know, we, we're looking at these truths, and it, it could be tempting to say, well, okay, what's the payoff for this? What should I, how, should I, how should I behave? Well, I mean, Paul will conclude this chapter in verse 58. Therefore, and then therefore points to everything he's said so far in verse 15. Now, I'm peeking ahead. We'll look at this again in more detail later. But because of this resurrection, because Christ has been raised, and that means that we will be raised, and we will be raised in bodies that are like Christ's, and then the end will happen, because of all this, then, he says, be steadfast. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. In other words, continue your work in the Lord, right? That's the whole thing of the parable of the talents, right? The master gives these gifts to his servants and says, work until I return. And two of them work until he returns, and the third one doesn't. And when the king returns, what happens? He rewards the first two and judges the third one. So the idea is this is to motivate our Christian living. How, why can we do what we do? Because we know Christ will return and he will right all wrongs and he, and he will bring the resurrection that, that he promised with his own resurrection. So we can be immovable. We can be steadfast. And we can always abound in the work of the Lord. Why? Because our labor, as Paul says here, is never in vain in the Lord. And we'll stop here with five minutes to go. Next time, Lord willing, the 6th, we'll look at verses 29 to 34.